This is Stuff for Parents, Episode 7. Welcome to the Stuff for Parents podcast. From schooling to parenting and everything else in between, we talk all about the stuff that comes with being a parent. Here's your host, Mark LaPointe. Welcome to the Stuff for Parents podcast. I'm Mark LaPointe, your host. So I'm really excited to introduce what is going to be a three-part series. And it's an interview that I had with teacher, educator, uh, speaker, and author Michael Zwagstra. Now, let me give you a bit of background. A few years ago, as I was conducting research for my book, Standing in the Education Gap, I actually came across Michael, who was being interviewed on a nationally syndicated uh, talk radio show, and they were uh, asking him questions about uh, his book that he co-authored titled What's Wrong with Our Schools and How We Can Fix Them. And it was a, just a really interesting interview because they were asking Michael about his observations um, regarding our our education system here in North America. And um, it just was information that I thought was not only interesting but really important for other parents and teachers to hear. And I was so interested in what he had to say. I went out and bought his book, read it a couple of times, and I actually cite portions of it in, in my own book. At the time, I uh, I thought to myself, it would be great to be able to to, to sit down and, and talk with Michael about some of his ideas and his solutions and and um, the concerns that he has. Because in many ways, um, he shares some of the same con- uh, concerns that I have regarding our our schools and our education system. And so, there's many aspects of our books that 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 are very similar. And so. Um, now that I host the Stuff for Parents podcast, I thought, hey, why not invite him to join us on the show? And he accepted the invitation. And so we had a great, a really a fantastic interview, a great conversation. And so what I decided to do was to split that into three episodes. I just think that the information that Michael shares is so interesting and so important for parents and teachers to hear that I wanted to break it down to 20, 25 minute episodes. So it's a little bit more manageable uh, because I really want uh, not only parents and teachers to hear this, I, I, I would love for it to, to start uh, a really useful dialogue um, for people to pass on that information because having Michael on the show, uh, it, I mean, that's a, that's a wonderful opportunity for us. So today we're going to, for part one, we're going to talk about critical thinking in our schools, why we encourage it, how our schools teach it. We're also going to get into this uh, to uh, a discussion about traditional education and why it's largely frowned upon in your average school. And then we're going to talk about a teacher versus child-centered classroom. So if, if you're not familiar with, with some of these some of this terminology, uh, some of these ideas, that's okay because Michael does an excellent job of explaining what it is and really how does that affect you as a parent and especially how does it affect your child. So I'm going to introduce part one of my interview with Michael Zagstra. Okay, so as parents... Many of us have probably at one time or another had some questions about our education system. Uh, maybe you've met with your child's classroom teacher and found someone who was eager and passionate about teaching, but talked about ideas and methods that only confused you further. I know I've had this experience uh, a number of times with my own kids, uh, but sometimes the, th- the things we're told by teachers and administrators sound so promising and progressive but then they seldom ever result in improved grades and a better education for our kids. So today, my goal is to help shed some light on education, on our education system here in North America. So I'm absolutely thrilled to have Michael Zweigstra as my guest. Michael is a public high school teacher in Manitoba, 
a research fellow with the Frontier Center for Public Policy, and a co-author of the book, What's Wrong With Our Schools and How We Can Fix Them. So, Michael, welcome to the uh, Stuff for Parents podcast. Well, I'm very happy to be with you, Mark. Thank you for having me. All right. So you've spent a good deal of time researching and writing and speaking about um, fixing our schools in general. So before we get into our discussion, um, can you tell us a little about how you de- developed an interest in this area? Uh, because let's be honest, at least in my experience, there's not a lot of public school teachers who think about this or question these things. So how, how did you develop an interest in it and how did it uh, um, result in the, in the work you do today outside of uh, teaching? Well, there's a, there's a couple of ways in which it developed. Uh, I suppose it would go back to when I was a university student myself. And uh, when I was taking my, uh, w- uh, my Bachelor of Education degree, uh, I found that uh, I really enjoyed my subject area courses. My main subjects were history and geography, and I found that I was learning a lot through those courses. Uh, but for the most part, I was not experiencing the same thing in my education classes. I found that uh, uh, the methods that they promoted didn't seem to make a lot of sense. Uh, They didn't seem to be very well supported by the evidence. And uh, I remember challenging a lot of the ideas even back then when I was a student. Uh, I was also fortunate enough to have uh, a a couple of education professors that thought differently than the rest of the faculty. And those two education professors, uh, Rod Clifton and John Long, happened to later on, of course, become the co-authors of our book. And uh, so I I was able to hear a different perspective from them uh, even when I was a a student at university. And so after I graduated with my, my education, degree and I started teaching, uh, it become, became even more apparent to me uh, that the methodologies that were taught at the Faculty of Education, this idea that students should essentially create their own learning and develop their own understanding, I found it to be very problematic. Uh, case in point, uh, I started out uh, as a grade five teacher initially. I now teach high school. And my first series of math lessons, I faithfully used the math textbook as assigned to the time. It was called Quest 2000. And it was this used this uh, approach where basically kids are supposed to figure out things for themselves. And I discovered after a couple of weeks doing that, that the kids just weren't getting it. And I remember asking the students, uh, do you, uh, have you been following any of this over the last couple of weeks? And they basically said no. And uh, that's when I uh, realized that I need to do something different here. And I, and I, I thought back to how I had uh, disagreed with these ideas that, the, that we were being taught in education school. And so I decided I'm going to do this my own way. And I created my own math worksheets. I got old math textbooks. And uh, I used a fairly traditional teaching approach. And so uh, it goes back quite a ways uh, to my university days and then since uh, while actually teaching. Uh, and then along with that, I also had begun doing some uh, uh, occasional at the time uh, writing and research for the Frontier Center, which is a think tank that's headquartered in Manitoba mm-hmm. and uh, has uh, offices in other parts of uh, of the uh, western provinces. And uh, so basically, uh, it was through uh, that as well that uh, that that I, I did more research and writing, and uh, and that just eventually led me to the point where I am today. So now I understand. Uh, we, we've had a few email correspondence, um, and uh, I mean, I've, I've read your book actually a couple of times, and, and your response to me when uh, you had a chance to read mine was, "We have very similar experiences." I, I, now I completely understand uh, where you're coming from because, yeah, you're right. We, uh, my experiences, you know, the questions that I had started in my education program, but. Unlike yourself, I, I didn't have um, professors who actually, you know, sort of questioned the status quo at the time. So you, you know, you're very fortunate that way. I kind of, over time, uh, you know, stumbled into the into these questions, and uh, so you're very fortunate. But um, I want to talk a little bit about uh, your book. Can you tell everyone who's listening 
basically what is the premise of the book? What's it all about? Well, the book is basically about uh, about the public education system. It takes a look at uh, uh, some of the challenges that uh, that parents are likely to experience uh, when they have their kids in the public school. And the book is intentionally designed to be as parent-friendly as possible. The chapters are intentionally kept short. There's a short reading list of bibliography at the end of each chapter. Each chapter starts with a story, a short little vignette to, uh, uh, to basically set the issue in a real-life case. And some of those situations that are in the book are a lot more real-life than some people mm-hmm. realize. Uh, they are based on, uh, on, on real examples. And uh, teachers who've read the book have commented to me how, how similar some of the experiences sound mm-hmm. to, uh, to what they've gone through. And uh, so basically what it does is it uh, takes a look at, uh, uh, at, at different issues. So, for example, the first chapter is called Subject Matter Matters, making the case for the importance of curriculum content the importance of knowledge. Uh, uh, following chapters called Tests Are Good for Kids, making the argument that testing is not something that we should be afraid of. Uh, a later chapter is called Teacher, uh, that classrooms should be teacher-centered, challenging uh, the idea that everything needs to be uh, student-centered, and so on. And so basically yeah. the book is designed to be reader-friendly, easy for parents to follow along, and, uh, and basically challenging some of the things that are going on in the system. And I think I can personally attest to the fact that it, it, it is reader friendly, uh, especially, you know, I know in this area, uh, some parents feel a little intimidated, um, whether it's with, you know, uh, topics in education or, or other um, niche topics, they, they, they might feel a little intimidated because they don't have any expertise. But I would say your, your book is, is very clear, very easy to read. And you're right with those little vignettes, the, 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 the little stories before you get into the issues, I think they're very helpful. And I can say from personal experience, having been a former teacher, there's a couple in there that uh, hit very close to home. And, and as a parent, too, I've had my kids come home from school and uh, share a couple of stories. And, you know, similar to, to some of the things, particularly um, we talk about, uh, you know, the discovery learning and things like that. So uh, for, for our listeners, I would very much encourage them to, to, to pick up this book. It's a, it's a fantastic read. Um, I'm curious, though, um, and you've alluded to this a little bit, but um, how has your book been received by other teachers and administrators? Well, you know, it's, a, it's an interesting question because I have found that uh, among classroom teachers, uh, I've, I've received a lot of positive feedback. Mm-hmm. I've heard from uh, uh, both in my area and elsewhere, a lot of teachers have uh, picked up the book and read it. Uh, I heard from uh, from one teacher that I uh, uh, that I was chatting with at an in-service. I, hadn't actually, I actually hadn't seen him in a number of years. We'd last seen each other when we were fellow university students. And he commented to me, as soon as I saw him, he said, you're... That's right. You're the guy who wrote that book. And it's a, he said that it apparently caused a huge issue in their school because teachers were had it. It was in the staff room and they were reading it. And some of the teachers were really enthusiastic about it. And uh, he told me that eventually the, the school principal actually put a kibosh on discussions about my book and about the book in the staff room. And uh, so it, it's received it's received quite a reaction. Uh, generally speaking, the uh, classroom teachers, the most support. However, the further you go away from the classroom setting, uh, the, the more criticism the book has received. So principals, uh, generally speaking, less supportive. Curriculum consultants don't like it at all because it's challenging their ideas. Right. Uh, school superintendents, uh, quite critical. Uh, education department officials and education professors, quite critical as well. So the further removed from the classroom, uh, the more critical the reception, uh, the more negative the reception to the book. And that That is fascinating. I mean, you know, the people, the teachers, the boots on the ground, so to speak, yeah, you know, I find that really interesting. And, uh, and you know, the um, like you said, the further away we, 
we get from the classroom, uh, the, perhaps the less well-received it is. So, and, and I think we're going to be touching on uh, on that idea a little bit later in our conversation. So, um, let's let's kind of dig into uh, into our topics today. Um, so, just let's you know, I don't want to start off on on. An, on negative footing. Let me put it this way. We're, we're certainly going to be touching on and being critical of a lot of philosophies and, and, and approaches to education, but I think it's important to start off talking about what do you feel are the positives um, in public education here in North America? Well, I, I certainly think there's a, there's a number of things that are positive. I mean, one thing that's, uh, that's quite positive is that uh, uh, public education is, uh, is universally accessible. We, uh, uh, we make sure that there are schools that are available to kids in every neighborhood and that, uh, that everyone has the opportunity to attend school regardless of their, uh, uh, their background or income. And uh, there's obviously some disparity from school to school, but in terms of the basic education, that's something that is universally provided. And of course, that has not always been the case in North America. So uh, I certainly support the idea of having public education available to anyone uh, with kids who wants to send uh, their kids to a public school. Uh, I would also say that... Uh, uh, the fact that uh, that we have a higher percentage of uh, students that are remaining in school that 's positive right. uh, i would uh, obviously it's it 's important that they uh, learn things along the way and uh, I would challenge some of the, the the standards in terms of how some things have been watered down in certain areas but in terms of the principle behind the fact that we want kids to stay in school uh, that is positive and that 's certainly something that uh, uh, that we 've seen an increased rate of of students who are attending school and going to school for longer. And uh, so, though, so certainly the, the universal accessibility, uh, the fact that, uh, that, that's, that students uh, are attending for, uh, uh, for longer periods of time and are, are completing high school, uh, those are certainly things that I would say are, are quite positive. Okay. Now, we're going to get into some specifics in just a couple of minutes, but you've talked about you know, some of the positive aspects. What, in general, concerns you about our system of education? Well, one of the things that concerns me the most, and it's, uh, it, this is quite pervasive, and uh, it's this, it's this anti-knowledge approach, and it's a, it's a harsh thing to say. I mean, it sounds extreme, uh, but actually when you look at what uh, different governments are doing in terms of changing public education and, and rewriting uh, the curriculum guides, we find less and less emphasis on specific knowledge and skills that all students need to have in common. I, I'm a firm believer in the idea that there are certain skills everyone needs to have and certain uh, pieces of information that everyone needs to have in their brain in order to function effectively in society. And what I've noticed, uh, certainly uh, uh, over the years and, and quite recently as well, is that uh, there's less and less emphasis on this. There's more emphasis on the so-called process of learning and not enough emphasis on uh, specific knowledge and skills. And that's one example of something that I, I find quite concerning. Okay. Yeah. Now, what you've just said is probably a really good segue into to my next question, because as I mentioned at the beginning, in my experience, a lot of parents, they seem to be a little bit in the dark or a lot in some cases about what goes on in the typical classroom. And so they hear about ideas and philosophies, um, but they don't, um, you know, they're not really seeing the entire picture, which is why I have you here to, uh, today as a guest. So I want to talk about specific philosophies or teaching approaches. And the first thing I want you to be able to comment on what probably one of the most common buzz phrases that educators use and parents hear about all the time is this idea of critical thinking. And in other words, the idea is that we want our kids to be able to, to do more than just memorize and regurgitate. We want them to be problem solvers and innovators. Can you tell us why, first of all, critical thinking 
or the skill of thinking critically has become so important in our schools and kind of segue into what you were talking about where um, we're not necessarily teaching skills and knowledge. Well, sure. I would, I would say that, first of all, the, the idea of critical thinking, you're not going to find anyone that disagrees that critical thinking itself Absolutely. is important. I, I think critical thinking is important, and uh, yes. uh, that's part of the reason that, that we wrote the books. We want people to think critically. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, the challenge here is that it, it's portrayed as this dichotomy. And uh, uh, what you'll often hear is you'll, you'll sim- schools will often you know show this chart. They'll say we have to have less of this and more of that. It'll, on the less side, it'll always say less memorization of facts, less focus on content, less, 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 and then more emphasis on critical thinking, deeper thinking, and uh, uh, and all of that sort of thing. Uh, the the issue here is that in order to think critically about something, you need to know about it. You need to have information. Right. And so, for example, someone who is uh, asked about uh, why did uh, Canadian Confederation happen the way it did in, uh, uh, when Canada first became a country, what are the causes behind it? If that person who's asked the question has to go to Google in order to find out, hmm. oh, well, when was that? And what were the provinces involved? And who was that guy, John Mc? I have no idea who he is. If someone doesn't know that in their head and doesn't have a broad understanding of what Canadian Confederation was, they can't think critically about it. Right. You cannot think critically in the absence of information. Uh, the, the reality is that uh, an, a, someone who's ignorant about a topic can't think critically about it. And so the problem is that uh, schools have such a heavy emphasis on critical thinking, but that's always juxtaposed with we need to do less memorizing, mm-hmm. less facts, because there's, we could just look things up. And as a result, we end up with people, with students, who are able to do less critical thinking than before because you cannot think critically in the absence of information and knowledge. Right. And with that in mind, I mean, that's an excellent point. So then I'm sure parents are wondering who are listening to this, okay, fine. Then what, you know, if our schools are promoting this idea of critical thought, critical thinking, um, which we, we agree is, is an important end game to education, but what are they doing to what are some of their approaches what are some of their ideas in order to teach and promote critical thinking in our schools if they're not in fact um teaching or or giving information to these students well what what's happening is you have a it's a philosophy of of education it's called constructivism mm-hmm. and basically what it means is that students should construct their own knowledge their own understanding of the world around them and so the idea is is that instead of conveying specific knowledge and skills to students instead of transmitting it to them as as most people tend to think of when you think of a regular classroom instead students are supposed to discover everything mm-hmm. uh, the and again there's there's an element of truth here. It is true that when you discover something, uh, it often does stick in your brain better. Um, but the problem is, is that when you make that the default mode for teaching everything. And so, for example, you take a typical, let's say, grade five math class where students are learning two-digit multiplication. Right. Uh, what happens so often in, in math is that students are are, are are given the numbers and they're given this convoluted word problem and they're supposed to figure out their own way of solving it. They're not shown the most efficient way of solving it or the standard algorithms. Rather, they're supposed to discover it. And it's horrendously inefficient, especially when you're doing it multiple times in every subject. And there's no guarantee they're actually going to develop the correct answer. And uh, so, you, so you end up with students that uh, just aren't getting the skills, aren't getting the knowledge, and that's very problematic. And uh, uh, But again, this goes hand-in-hand hand with the idea of, of, of the so-called critical thing that's 
are only going to think critically if they discover it. And uh, uh, it's problematic because uh, the great concepts of the ages, so for example, you know, certain math algorithms and such, took centuries for some for experts to develop. You're not <laughs> going to rediscover it in grade seven right. uh, in one hour. It's just that's just how it is. Yeah, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm a former math teacher, and w- what's been amazing to me over the years. I mean, I have I haven't taught in the classroom for about ten years now, but what's been amazing to me is how. Um, it seems that math has become sort of a relative truth, uh, but, but it, it's not. Math is is what it is. It's it it, it does not uh, change. And I have personal experience with my own kids when when they were in uh, the regular classroom, especially with my son. And I remember in grade six, uh, coming home, watching him do some homework and using his calculator. And as a math teacher, I'm a little concerned that a grade six would need a uh, a calculator. And asked what he was doing and, and, uh, the, the textbook that, that he was using and they still use in the classroom is something called math makes sense, which is a decidedly a discovery based approach to, to, to learning math. And I, I'll, I'll tell you, math makes sense. It, it doesn't. No, <laughs> no, I know sort of an ironic title, but anyway, um, and I, and I asked, well, why are you using your calculator? And he was trying to do some long division and I pressed him further. Well, why don't you just do it on, on paper? Like I used to do when I was a kid and he had told me that, no, we're, we're told that long division takes too long. It kind of takes away from, from our understanding of the question at the time. I thought, okay, I'll, it seems like uh, we'll have to take this with a grain of salt. But I, I had approached his uh, his teacher at, at at one point and asked about that and said, "Yeah, we don't we don't teach them long division, not through this uh, this text." And uh, that's one of the first times that I re- my eyes really opened up to this whole idea of di- of discovery learning, and, and especially in math. So um, you're right. I you know the things that you mentioned, uh, you know, uh, discovery, trying to discover something on your own, it it really doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So let's talk a little bit more about traditional learning. Uh, so usually well, when we hear the word traditional, at least in the world of education, there's a tendency for educators and by association parents to be left with the impression that it means that uh, uh, things are outdated and they're ineffective. Can you describe for us what teaching practices are typically asso- associated with traditional teaching or education? Well, certainly, when uh, when I talk about traditional education, uh, and and again, traditional is is, is is there's always connotations people have with the word as uh, as you've identified, uh, but uh, it's probably still the best word in terms of encapsulating some of this. Basically, it means simply put that uh, the teacher is in charge of the classroom, that the teacher uh, knows the curriculum, the teacher knows things that the students don't know, and needs to make sure students learn these things. Uh, the teacher uh, uses a variety of methods and strategies in which to convey uh, the knowledge and skills that kids need to have. And so that can include a combination of an explanation. Yes, that does mean lectures, uh, although it doesn't mean just standing in front for an hour and just talking. Um, It it can mean guided discussion where you're asking questions and probing students and and getting them to think more deeply. Uh, It can mean giving an assignment where I clearly structure it where the easier questions are at the beginning and the harder questions are to the end, and I'm walking up and down the room to see as they're progressing and then checking to see uh, which students need additional help. Uh, it can it can also mean having opportunities for students to work in groups uh, if there's a more advanced question and I want them to do some exploration because, again, some discovery is perfectly fine in a right. traditional classroom. I just don't make it the focus uh, of, of everything that I'm doing. And so traditional teaching simply put means the teacher is in charge the teacher has knowledge and skills 
and is uh, that the students need to have and does everything he or she can to make sure that that is conveyed to the students. So, well, let's talk about that for a second, just with the, what you call the teacher-centered classroom. The teacher is in charge. The teacher is the, the, the supposed expert um, and is teaching to the kids. Uh, one of the other terms that parents and certainly educators uh, know about or have heard about is this idea of a child-centered classroom. Can you tell us um, more specifically what that is and um, why is it such a, a popular uh, approach to, to teaching? Well, child-centered uh, has a certain intuitive, it, it, it sounds nice to say, because yes. obviously the kids should be the center of what we're doing. And so if it simply means that, I fully agree. Let's have student-centered or child-centered. Uh, the challenge is, is that in practice what it means is that the teacher, as much as possible, removes himself or herself from the, the center of, of attention at any given time. There is this old saying that every education student hears, uh, a teacher should be a guide on the side rather than a sage on the stage. Right. And uh, so basically the teacher is supposed to get out of the way and be the architect of learning, to set up the overall parameters uh, that make it possible for students to discover uh, new things and new skills and the teacher is still there as a guide and helping out, uh, but ideally the teacher should be off to the side as much as possible and letting the students set the direction of their own learning. Uh, in its purest form, that's basically what uh, what child-centered education looks like. Okay, so I mean, we've talked a little bit about you know what, what traditional teaching or education means. Uh, we, we've certainly talked about some of the more progressive ideas we could call them. So you've already alluded to this, you, you know, even within your own classroom, if it's appropriate, you will incorporate more discovery-based methods. If, you know, you said the focus is not on that, but if it's appropriate, you'll, you'll, you'll incorporate them. So why do you think then, um, in general, that traditional methods and, and very effective methods are completely thrown out? in favor of more, we'll call them progressive methods. Why can't we find sort of the happy marriage between the two, do you think? Well, there's a couple of reasons. One is that uh, the traditional methods go against the ideology of the uh, uh, of, of those who support constructivism or child-centered education. It, it contradicts their ideology and uh, because fundamentally, uh, many of these education professors disagree with the premise that there's specific knowledge everyone needs to have in common. Mm. Um, a couple of years ago, I spoke at uh, Acadia University in Wolfville, Nova Scotia, right. and uh, I had a group of education professors in the audience, uh, which is a tough crowd, let me tell you. <laughs> and uh, at the end of my presentation, they had actually assigned uh, two people to uh, to give an official rebuttal. I don't know how many other of their guest speakers they have guests, they have rebuttals prepared, ready yeah. to go. Uh, but the, the education professor who uh, responded to me, he said the number one thing he disagreed out of what I had to say was this idea that there's specific knowledge everyone needs to have in common. He actually said there is no single piece of knowledge that everyone needs to have in common. That was his basic premise. So that just sort of illustrates just how far apart we are in this dichotomy. So if you actually believe that or even a semblance of that, of course you're not going to like any aspects of traditional education because uh, traditional education is all about uh, making sure students learn specific things that they all need to have in common. And uh, so that's uh, one reason why it's a challenge. Secondly, uh, the, uh, why the uh, advocates of child-centered education oppose traditional methods is because traditional methods are so remarkably effective for teachers. Teachers can use traditional methods with great effectiveness. The research evidence is quite strong on this, that traditional methods are very effective. And I'm amazed, actually, how strong the evidence is and how, how, how frequently that evidence is just simply ignored. But 
since that is there's it's such it's so effective uh, invariably if teachers use these traditional methods they're going to use them more and they're going to use these child-centered ideologies uh, and strategies a lot less and of course if your main focus is to promote that that ideology you're not going to want it to coexist with more traditional methodologies so stay tuned for our next episode where we continue our conversation and we talk about teachers, teacher training, talk about the the abundance, really the overabundance of teachers in our system. And we also get into testing and grading in our schools. So if you would like to know more about Michael, read some of his articles, perhaps watch uh, one of his presentations, uh, go to his website. It's michaelzwagstra.com. So that's Michael and Zwagstra is spelled Z-W-A-A-G-S. T-R-A, michaelzweigstra.com. And there you can find a lot of great information, more information about Michael. And if you have any specific questions for him, you can contact him through his website. If you have any questions for me or like me to pass on a, a question or a comment to Michael, or you just simply have comments, you can email me at comments at stuffforparents.com or simply go to the comments section um, at the bottom of this uh, episode at our website, www stuffforparents.com and leave a comment or a question there. So I really encourage you to tune into our our next episode, part two of my interview with Michael Zweigstra, and we will uh, talk to you then. Bye for now.